Okay, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much for coming to this seminar, which, as you may know, is entitled Why I Am Still Passionate About the Gospel. So that was the title I was given. Uh, in reality, folks, I wish I was more passionate about the gospel. Uh, so my name is Adrian Holloway, and I just want to give you a little bit of personal introduction because I think parts of the talk won't make sense unless you get this bit. So uh, I've been personally involved in most of the 250 or so UK churches that make up New Frontiers in this country. I've preached in most of them, most of those 250. I used to run a conference for evangelists that served all of those churches and I used to meet with the UK team that oversaw all of those churches. So I've been involved in this, in our world uh, now, for more than 25 years. And I want to draw on those experiences as I'm speaking this afternoon. Historically, we in New Frontiers have always been regarded as being passionate about the gospel. And we still are. However, for the first time in the past five years, I've begun to notice a change which has made me wonder, are we losing some of our passion for the gospel? Let me give you a summary of what I plan to say in this seminar. And just by the way, I don't expect you to agree with what I say. This is just my perspective. So we want people to reach point 10 on this scale. We pray for revival for many reasons, but one of them is because we want loads of people to reach point 10 on this scale. We want people to reach point 10 because we are passionate about the gospel. However, when you think about the unique contribution that we as New Frontiers have made over the past 40 years in the UK, saved and added growth would not be the number one thing that we're known for. If you were to talk about Holy Trinity Brompton and their amazing church planting network, or Hillsong, or Audacious Church Manchester, or Kingsgate Peterborough, or City on a Hill Edinburgh, for example, saved and added growth might be the number one thing that they are known for. But for us, there will be other things probably that will be our strongest suit. Other things that we are best at. Saved and added growth has always been a passion of ours, and it is happening. And I repeat, it's only in the past five years or so that I've noticed for the first time some disillusionment or flatness regarding our passion for the gospel. In this seminar, I'm going to suggest one reason why I think we are in danger of losing some of our passion for the gospel. I think that this whole time, we have not paid enough attention to process. <laughs> and that we're now paying the price for that. And that we're now becoming disillusioned with the lack of results. Okay, what process? Well, I think that Jesus taught that evangelism is a process. A process that takes time. 
I think that all the analogies that Jesus used for evangelism, such as sowing, farming, fishing, and searching for lost items, I think these are all processes that take time. I think that we have sometimes failed to get real about the process. Unlike the churches I just mentioned, we have by and large not modelled a journey in, a way whereby I can see how my next door neighbour, my friend at the bottom of the scale, might become a Christian through my church. If most people in Britain are down here at the bottom of the scale and we want them to reach the top, then Lord Send Revival is a great prayer to pray. But when I finish praying Lord Send Revival, well, how many not yet Christians am I befriending? What am I doing to make new friends? What am I doing? What are we really doing to journey people up the scale? Most of the churches in the UK who have seen significant saved and added growth, in my experience, have defined a journey in. In those churches, Christians become increasingly confident. I can see how my friend, my next-door neighbor, might end up becoming a Christian through my church. Evangelism is more caught than taught. And when you see it working, when you can see other Christians like you enjoying an evangelistic lifestyle, you get buy-in. Okay, so that's where I'm going. I've told you the end at the beginning. Now let's go back to the start of our story. New Frontiers began with a passion for the gospel. It began with a desire to be evangelistic and relevant. In the 1960s, there was a huge cultural gulf between the Baptist church that Terry Virgo was part of in Hove and the young people of Brighton. The traditional staid evangelical church subculture was so alien to where Terry's non-Christian friends were at that inviting a non-Christian friend to church was virtually a non-starter. The roots of the charismatic renewal were many. There was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There was the rediscovery of the missing jewel of worship, and so on. But one of the main reasons why our kind of churches originally came came into existence was out of the realization that for Terry and for others, it was hard to even imagine your non-Christian friends joining a church that was stuck in the past, in an evangelical time warp. This was part of restoration in the church, part of the motivation to see the church restored, so that it looked more like the exciting, dynamic, and relevant church that we read about in the book of Acts. So 40 years on, Now, we can look back and try and assess what have we learned. Well, I was converted in a New Frontiers church on the 14th of April, 1985. And I want to describe briefly five phases that I've lived through since then. Because I think we can learn lessons from all five of them for today. Here's the first, I've called it the charismatic renewal days, open brackets, street evangelism, open airs, sketchboarding, door to door, and just looking. A few knowing, knowing sniggers. 
I was converted in the heyday of the charismatic renewal. At that time, in the mid-1980s, the thinking was, hey, church used to be predictable. We used to have a hymn sandwich. We used to sing a set number of hymns, then there'd be a sermon. But now, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've discovered spiritual gifts, so Sundays are now exciting. You never know what's going to happen next. We have words of knowledge, we have tongues, we have interpretation, and then so-and-so over here starts a song, this person over there then starts another song, actually a totally new song that nobody's ever sung before, but now we're all singing it, and it was rousing, and it was stirring. My memory of Sundays at this time was that it was exciting, it was sometimes absolutely buzzing, and it was often said from the pulpit that if an unbeliever did come in, then there might be a revelatory prophecy and then that unbeliever would have the secrets of their hearts laid bare and they would worship God and fall down and exclaim, surely God is among you. 1 Corinthians 14.25 Our preachers literally said, now the Holy Spirit is here on Sundays, the lost will be drawn here. But, nevertheless, it was actually unusual for non-Christians to be invited into this high-risk, unpredictable environment. The focus seemed to be on the exciting things that the Holy Spirit was doing in the church. And it was quite telling that almost all the evangelistic initiatives and programs seemed to be focused on cold contact evangelism. If you did a volunteer year on what is now called Impact, or what was called the Frontier Year Project, it was for everyone a year of cold contact evangelism, open airs, sketchboarding, street preaching, door-to-door evangelism. In those days, we were literally walking down the high street, holding placards, marching for Jesus, and singing, make way to passing shoppers. I don't remember anything in those days that served friendship evangelism. In a few of our churches, you could invite a friend to a course called Just Looking, which was actually a brilliant course. And although it was very brief, it really did explain Christianity to people who were just looking. But the ace practitioners, who were people like Dave Gillard, Lex Loisides, and Mike Hewitt, were doing Just Looking to groups of two or three interested people. The feeling was, when we get another interested person, we'll launch another just looking. Our churches were growing, primarily through transfer growth of existing Christians, but we were proclaiming the gospel. If you went down to the town centre on a Saturday morning, you would likely come across two committed and vocal groups. One, the Socialist Workers' Party, (laughs) and two, the local charismatic Christians. Phase two, the dawn of the Alpha Course. I once sat down in the Alpha Head office opposite the Natural History Museum in South Kensington, and they told me, that when Alpha exploded onto the scene in the mid-1990s, that the group of churches, the denomination who served up, who signed up most avidly, the denomination who signed up most uniformly, was New Frontiers. And in many ways, Alpha was a godsend. Because up until then, we had evangelistic zeal. 
We were literally standing on benches in the town centre preaching at passers-by. We had passion. We totally believed the gospel. But the two main things our churches did were Sundays and house group. And Sundays and house group were for Christians. Then along came Alpha, which was exactly what we were missing. Obviously, you will only get so far scattering the pigeons and talking to strangers outside the shopping centre. Now, finally, we had something tailor-made and low-cringe that we could invite our friends to. It even had the respectability of being a church, of being a course from the Church of England, something our school hall churches didn't have. Plus, Alpha had the X factor. It had the Holy Spirit weekend. It had, as the climactic moment of the course, the Holy Spirit we had discovered. So Sundays... <laughs> so Sundays could continue unchanged. House group can continue unchanged. And we continue to plant our churches. But now we have Alpha as well. And virtually every New Frontiers church started running Alpha. And when Nicky Gumble came to the New Frontiers Leaders Conference in Brighton in 1996. It was absolutely electric. But the number of guests, although many more than in the just-looking days, was still much smaller than we had hoped. At which point, along came Lawrence Kong, Randy Neighbour, and Cell Church. Suddenly, everything made sense. What we'd failed to do just by starting Alpha was we'd failed to equip and mobilize the church. If you think of the church as a house, the open airs of the 1980s, that was like a greenhouse in the garden that we went out into when it was sunny. Then we realized that what we'd done was we'd replaced the open airs with Alpha. But Alpha <coughs> was also a greenhouse in the garden. It was not actually an integral part of the house. It was not actually an integral part of the church. Yes, we ran an Alpha course, but you only went to it if you brought a friend. So for loads of our people, they were pleased that we ran Alpha, but they never brought anyone to it. Besides, most people in the church had never been on Alpha, and it's really hard to bring someone to something that you have never experienced yourself. You cannot recommend Alpha from personal experience if you've never been to Alpha. So, Cell Church was intriguing. We were told, hey, if you want to reach Singapore for Christ, if you want to see thousands of people saved and added, you need an evangelistic church. You need a cell church. What if a non-Christian comes back from the shops and rather than having to struggle up the stairs with their shopping to their, uh, in their apartment block, what if there are Christians on the stairs all day who help neighbours carry their shopping to their apartment? And then you invite those neighbours to the cell which meets in the same block of flats. If you're not a Christian, you might never come to a Sunday church service or to Alpha. But what if the church came to you? What if the church was a living cell in your block of flats and you experienced Christian community in and through the cell where you live? This was huge. Huge because for the first time, one of the two things that we did changed. 
house group was replaced by cell group. And many churches worked incredibly hard at making the transition. However, the thing is that our non-Christian friends were starting much further away from point 10, much lower down the scale, than in the Singapore-slash-USA model. And so, therefore, it does take time. Jesus' parable of the growing seed teaches that evangelism is a process that takes time. It just seemed to take a lot longer in England because people were starting from so far back. And I think eventually many of the cell churches lost patience and lost their enthusiasm for the model. Again, they didn't see the results they were looking for. But of course, Sundays had remained much the same through all of this. And so when everyone started listening to Mark Driscoll's sermon, sermons from Mars Hill, Seattle, there was a rethink that went something like this. Hang on a minute. A huge amount of our money, time, staffing and effort goes into Sunday morning, our children's work, our hall hire, the welcome, the car park, the stewards, the teas and coffees, the list is endless. The most public thing we do is that we all turn up on a Sunday. What if we could make Sunday match day for evangelism? What if we could make Sundays the gateway, the entrance point for the non-Christian? If Mark Driscoll can preach the gospel every week in Seattle and see lots of non-Christians converted, hey, what about our Sunday sermons? We're not ashamed of the gospel. We've got no theological objections to preaching the gospel. We believe the gospel. What if we could preach the gospel in a way that seemed accessible to the guest and teach and edify the church at the same time? Well, this was an exhilarating challenge. It involved rethinking the entire process of sermon preparation. What if every week we had sermons that were funny, amusing, relevant to the guests, with superb, culturally relevant, cutting-edge evangelistic illustrations? Sermons that at the same time were also feeding the church. If we can crack this... If we can crack this, we no longer need to schedule occasional evangelistic guest services because every Sunday can be a guest service. <laughs> of course, the challenge here is to excel at hitting both targets every week. To hit the ball out of the park evangelistically every week and also feed the church in the same sermon and to do both well every week. But here's the thing. Yes, the sermon changed. The sermon changed massively. But everything that happened in the service before the sermon remained exactly the same. Exactly the same as before. The whole thinking was, yeah, if we rethink Sunday so that the sermon is relevant to the guest. No, 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 wait. You only change the sermon. The arrival, the welcome, the worship time, the contributions, the notice, everything that happened before the new look sermon was exactly the same as before. So what if your church are still equally unlikely to invite non-Christian friends on a Sunday, in which case you would be preaching the gospel for at least 15 minutes of your sermon every Sunday, but you might have no more non-Christians in the room than you did before you made the change. In other words, hey, pastor, 
You may well have changed your sermons, but I still don't have anyone I can bring on a Sunday. I do have non-Christian friends, but my friends are still miles away from turning up on a Sunday morning at church. My friends are still at the bottom of the angle scale. Now, by the stage of our journey, we had had the 2008 financial crash and the austerity that followed provided an unprecedented opportunity for our kind of new churches. For decades, up until now, we had been faced with questions like this. What kind of church are you? Are you a proper church? I've heard of Catholic, I've heard of Church of England, I've heard of Methodist and Baptist. What kind of church are you? And then the financial reality of the government cutbacks gave us an opportunity to gain real credibility with our local council. And we have now got real authenticity in the eyes of many. In recent years, many of our churches have been able to come in from the cold. In an age of austerity, George Osborne told us that the state can't provide all the services it used to anymore. So David Cameron literally <laughs> asked churches and other charities to step into the gap. He literally asked volunteers to form a big society and care for all the people who were having their benefits and provisions slashed. So rather than continually offering something, in our case the gospel, to people who didn't seem to want it, we were now offering something, for example food and clothing, to people who really wanted it. It would be no exaggeration to say that if all the Christians in Britain serving in food banks and so on were to disappear overnight off the face of the earth, there would be a social care provision meltdown in this country. We really are meeting a need. We really are making a difference. However, at the same time, I am now having conversations with New Frontiers pastors that I've never had before. Pastors coming to me quite concerned saying, I now have a church of middle class people who are all serving the underclass. And I'm wondering for the first time if we are actually talking to anyone else about sin, Jesus and the cross. I thank God, they say, that we are more engaged in our community than we ever were before, but we are not seeing saved and added growth. Pastor saying to me, my church seems to be motivated by the sight of people experiencing poverty, but they don't seem to be motivated by the invisible spiritual needs of the vast majority of people in our town who are actually lower middle class people heading to eternity without Christ. Is it just me or is this a thing? They ask. Since 1997, I've preached in over a hundred New Frontiers churches in the UK. I've spoken at gatherings like this of the, all the different spheres. From 2014 to 2020, I worked as a full-time evangelist. And one of the things that happened in those six years was that I got involved in smaller churches in their eldership teams as a consultant. A typical church would invite me in would be a church of between 100 and 150 attendees on a Sunday. And I would ask, when I meet with the eldership team, tell me what's happening at your church. They would then list an impressive and dizzying number of ministries. Food bank, cap, soup kitchen. We played football with the teenagers up on the estate. So on and on the list would go. 
it was not unusual to find a church with a Sunday attendance of 120, including kids, who would be running 10 outreach ministries. And their question to me was, why aren't we growing? Why aren't, after all this effort, why aren't we seeing Save the Natty grow? And of course, as the conversation goes on, they answered their own question. Because they then told me that the people serving in these many ministries are now exhausted. And that when they try and recruit volunteers, all the other nine ministries in the church are competing for the same potential volunteers. All the committed people are committed up to the eyeballs. And because the church isn't growing, there's nobody else to ask. Everyone's tired. Everyone's hanging on, feeling a bit disappointed with the results. That's the start of the consultation. I would then typically ask, okay, that's interesting. Would you say that your church has an evangelistic strategy? And in most eldership teams, there was no agreement in the room on what the church's evangelistic strategy was. In some teams, there was a strong feeling that the church should not have an evangelistic strategy because a strategy is a carnal, man-made thing, and we don't want that. We want God. I would then say, okay, okay, let, let's, let's take it out of this room. Let's imagine I turned up on a Sunday and I just chatted to people. If I were to ask people in a church, hey, you know, what do you think? What is your church's evangelistic strategy? And what do you think they would say? And if they were to say, well, hang on, what do you mean by an evangelistic strategy? You could describe it as the journey in. In other words, hey, if your friend, if your next door neighbor did become a Christian through your church, what would that journey into your church look like? I mean, what would be the steps? In most cases, the feeling was that the church folks did not see a viable, realistic pathway whereby their non-Christian friend could or would become a Christian through their church. At that time in my life, that was really striking because at that time in my life during my sabbatical, I had visited numerous churches in the UK that I'd heard were growing through safe and added growth. And I discovered that the common denominator between them, although they were from many different denominations and had many different strategies, is that they all had one agreed journey in. They had a model. They had a defined pathway that worked and the church had confidence in it because it worked. And if you're in that church and you personally have loads of friends in your church, and all your friends in your church, they all became Christians the same way. And also that's how you became a Christian. Yeah, you would have confidence that your non-Christian friend could also become a Christian that same way. For example, I went to Audacious Church Manchester and I spent a lot of time with them. They started with 170 people. A few years later, the Sunday that I, I went, they had 3,300. They, the, the vast majority of their growth has been saved and added growth and their strategy is really simple. And everybody's bought into it. It's basically make a friend and bring them to Sunday. And they would spend an enormous amount of time on their Sunday. There was an enormous focus on what was going on on their Sunday. It was an attractional model, but the church bought into it. And that's one of the reasons that they grew and, and are growing still. And it's this, finding a viable journey in. This is, in my opinion, what we've not done. Typically in our kind of churches, we've not really thought through or bottomed out or defined a journey in. Yes, we run an alpha course, but there's a world of difference between a church that runs an alpha course and an alpha church. 
Alpha is a realistic invitation for a non-Christian who is at, say, 0.5 on the scale. Our situation is that 90% of our not-yet-Christian friends are way down at the bottom of the scale. Our churches are brilliant at being passionate about those on the margins of society. But there are 67 million people in Britain, and most of them are not on the margins of society. We've not thought through all the work that needs to be done to equip Christians to journey these kind of people to Christ. We've not thought through a pathway. We've not even agreed that the church should have one. And this, folks, is where the rubber hits the road. We do pray for revival. We are passionate about that. What I think we are asking God to do, and I've been in hundreds of these prayer meetings. I've led many of these prayer meetings myself. Sometimes it sounds like what we're asking God to do is to zap people. (laughs) To zap people at the bottom of the scale. And because God is sovereign, God can do that. Well, I think I've earned my spurs studying the history of revivals, especially revivals in the UK. I think I've put in the hours. And in my opinion, that is not typically what happens in revival. In the vast majority of cases, those converted in revivals were not at point one on the scale. They were much higher up. Many of them have been to Sunday school. For example, in the Welsh revival, the vast majority of the converts were people who already knew the gospel. They knew about Jesus, they knew about the cross, they knew about the resurrection. There was very little preaching of the gospel in the Welsh revival. Why? Because people already knew the gospel. Yes, God can zap a non-Christian right now at a bus stop in Bournemouth. Someone who's miles away from Christ. But it is extremely rare. Why? Because that's not the way God has chosen to do it. In the Bible, Jesus makes clear he wants to use us. Now, you might think that what you've heard so far is an absurdly long preamble. (laughs) Given that I've now been speaking for absolutely ages, and I've still not addressed the title that I was given. But it is my contention that the reason why we're in danger of losing our passion for the gospel is because we have had unrealistic expectations. You can't just put on an Alpha course and expect the church to bring guests. You can't just say, Alpha starts on Tuesday, bring your friends. Evangelism is more caught than taught. If you've never seen it done, in a non-cringe way, you and I, we're probably going to need a role model. How are we expecting the Christians in our church to change so much, so fast? If I want to lose four stone and keep that weight off for the rest of my life, yes, it can happen. Yes, some people do it totally on their own. But for most people who make that sort of dramatic change, they need help, and they make that change in a group. They have a coach. They have a mentor. Because we are talking about significant lifestyle change. If we have been inward-looking, and we're suddenly going to have non-Christian friends that we can invite to stuff, most of our folks will need somebody to coach them, to inspire them, to equip them, 
if you don't have help, don't have coaching, don't have mentoring, if your church is running 10 ministries, which are really bringing the kingdom ministries, ministries to those on the margins, that is what you're going to get. You will get a church that is passionate about those on the margins. But you may find, find it hard to maintain a passion for the majority of people in your town who don't have the same acute, visible needs. So why be passionate about the majority? The majority of the 67 million people in our nation who are not on the margins of society. Answer, because the Bible says they're not okay. The Bible says that something bad will happen to them when they die. And here as I close, I do want to directly address the question. Do you know what? As I was thinking about what to say on the title I was given, I thought the easy way to do this is to explain why I'm passionate about the gospel just by telling some really inspiring good news stories. For example, in the first five years at Christchurch London, I saw 197 people become Christians and we baptized 165 of them. And I kept records on all of them and I could tell you those stories and we could have had an amazing hour and it would have been a good answer to why I'm passionate about the gospel because look at all these lives that have changed. Then I can tell you what some of them are doing now and that would still have been inspiring. I have found it's easy to be passionate about the gospel at harvest time. But is that my only motivation? Most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. And what Jesus says about hell should make me and every single one of us passionate, not just for people who have visible, obvious felt needs, but passionate also for those who appear to be average British people who have no desperate or obvious felt needs. According to Jesus, anyone who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. In Matthew 13:50, Jesus talks about people being thrown into the blazing furnace, which Jesus says is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 23:33, Jesus says to some people, "You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell?" Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Which is a quotation from Isaiah 66 and verse 24. So most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. We do have 
other New Testament authors who speak to the subject, Jude 1.7, talks about people suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 21.8 says, All liars will be consigned to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Revelation 20, there we see a, a very broad category of people who are thrown into the lake of fire. The dead and those in Hades. We read, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The Apostle Paul, speaking about those who will go to hell, says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So if it is really true that God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, which is what those scriptures were talking about, but have eternal life. If it's really true that the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to repentance, then let us consider the people near or around us who, as Paul puts it, do not know God. On the basis of John 3.18, which says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So this group are the most disadvantaged because they're going to hell. And this group are also the most numerous. Folks, as I, as I finish... These are sobering verses from the Bible. And so I think it would be good for us to pray as we close, and then we'll have a short time for questions. Why don't you, if you like to, you can bow your head or close your eyes, and let's come before God and let's pray. <coughs> let's come before God. Lord, in this room we feel a little sense of awe in the light of the verses that we've just read, especially as some of the most chilling ones came out of your mouth, Lord Jesus. And we're moved also by what the other New Testament authors say about this subject. Lord, for us it is awe-inspiring to consider what is at stake when we're talking about the subject. It's mind-boggling to consider what is at stake for the 67 million people in our country. Lord, we thank you that the gospel is the power of God 
for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we're mindful of your servant, the Apostle Paul, who very logically says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Lord, I thank you for all the beautiful feet in this room. I thank you for all the beautiful feet that came down the corridor and walked into this room. All the beautiful feet that are touching this carpet right now. I thank you, Lord, for all those who are sent. Lord, we just want to bring every single day we have left on this planet to you. Lord, we thank you for being caught up in such an awesome, awesome commission. Lord, we thank you for the glorious conclusion. We thank you, Father, that as we've just heard in the previous session, there'll be a day when every unreached language group will be written. There won't be a, a, a language group on the planet that won't have a Bible written in their language. There'll be a, a, a church in every single community that's <coughs> capable of evangelizing that community. There will be at least one person from every ethnic group, every racial group, every nation, every tongue around the throne of God. We thank you for the amazing success of the gospel in the end times. But Lord, for our little bit of it, and we don't know how long we've got, Lord, we just want to give ourselves wholeheartedly. Thank you for entrusting us with this awesome task, this awesome task in the history of our planet. Thank you for involving us in this room in something that's just so incredibly important. Thank you, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we seek to befriend and to journey people to you. Amen. Amen. I did say at the beginning that you wouldn't agree with everything that you hear in the seminar. That's absolutely fine. I also said it is just one person's perspective. Look, when I say it's just, it's just one person's perspective is what you've heard. Folks, I didn't grow up in an evangelical, Bible-believing home. I didn't grow up with all of this. I'm just so glad that somebody took the trouble to befriend me and tell me about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So thank you for listening to me. Um, it's been great being with you. Thanks very much. Great. Okay, well, we can have a short time of Q&A. My goodness, hand up straight away. I've never had that before. That's fantastic. Uh, please do raise your hands, and I'll try and answer as loudly as I can. Yes, so tell us who you are and where you're from. Um, I'm James. I'm from Welcome Church in Wyoming. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, thank you. That's brilliant. Um, I, I was wondering about the interaction of our sort of finally home strategy, uh, except that what basically what we're saying is we haven't got one. But, if, if, you know, if we didn't have one the interaction between that and um, God's sovereignty. So if you think through the beginning of Acts, the apostles have got a strategy and it's all focused around Jerusalem and they've got their meal the world. And then it's the persecution that actually spreads the word. Uh, and then later Paul wants to go to Asia, he wants to go to Bithynia, and God says that's not going to happen. It, that's how Paul ends up in Europe. And I, I, I was just wondering how, how we form strategies in the light of not really knowing what God's going to do next. Yeah. 
So the question is about what's the interaction. I've, I've been talking for part of the seminar about the value of having a strategy, but as James has pointed out in the book of Acts, sometimes things just happen, like the persecution of the early church, people spread, and we didn't know that was going to happen, but actually when it did happen, it was a really good thing, but that's something the Holy Spirit did. Absolutely, funnily enough, the probably the most strategically successful evangelistic Satan and growth right now is HTB's church planting program through Alpha. And the way that started was it wasn't quite like the persecution in the book of Acts, but you had uh, what we would call a discipleship course in a Church of England church in central London. But then what happened was that a very able barrister came in who was an absolute full-on evangelist. And he put an evangelistic couple of talks on the front of the course and then started changing the whole course again and again and again and again and again. Because he's an advocate, he was actually quite good at presenting a case. I mean, this is, this is a guy who would literally, run, when he was converted at Cambridge, run up to people in the streets, give them tracts, you know, did all sorts of crazy things like we did when we were first converted. But now you've got him ordained in the pulpit in charge of the joining the church course, which he turns into an alpha course. Same thing. They're still running with that. But there will probably come a time where something else will happen that the Holy Spirit is in, and that's not what they're doing anymore. But at the moment, all their new plants are being planted with people that became Christians that way. So you don't have to say, hey, gosh, we're in this new city. How are we ever going to reach people? Oh, I don't know. No, because all the people that started your church have all become Christians the same way. So it's not, obviously that's what they're going to do. They all know what they're doing. There's no great kind of debate. You just do reproduce what you've seen work before. Good question. Any other questions? Roger, hello. Hi, Adrian. So tell us where you're from. I know who you are and where you're from, but tell these guys. Roger Smith, um, Salisbury Grace Church. Um, the motivation that you set out is straightforward. This is what Jesus said about hell. It's serious. Does it impact you as a believer or not? If it does, you get the positive, I must go and tell yeah. people because they are going to hell. What if you've got a church of people who don't actually believe necessarily, or maybe haven't ever been taught about hell? Do you start at that point with your church? Or do you just work with the ones who are impacted already and send them off to do whatever they do? Yeah. Great question. My answer to your question is, no, I wouldn't start preaching about hell. I might do it at a leaders' conference, because those are people that have already signed up to believe in the Bible and are leading others, because I imagine that we've all bought in. But I wouldn't do it with a church, for the reason you've just given the most likely way to motivate people is to show people life change. Here's someone who was stuck. Here's the difference now. Look at the joy. They were miserable. Now they've got this joy. And, of course, you can preach that, and that's just as biblical. Um, for example, the, the scripture that we just heard in the last session from John 4, great place to start. Here's this woman. She's a bit stuck. She's had five husbands. The man who she now has isn't her husband. Um, and yet, at the end, she's running up to the people who rejected her at the start of John 4 and telling them, come see a man who told me everything I've done. She's overflowing with joy. 
you can't keep her. She's literally bouncing around the town with joy, and yet at the start of the story, she's the only one going to draw water in the heat of the day. Why? Because everybody else has given her a cold shoulder. Why? Because she's the immoral woman. Yes! So that's where I'd start. I'd start with that, with the church. Great question. Yes? Um, I know there's no formula. I'm not, not going to ask you to find me one. Let me find us one. But um, of all the places that you visited um, with or without this A strategy, um, you mentioned one church that I didn't write down that you said um, had massive growth. Um, what would you say was the biggest difference? You see, what I'm thinking of is it's, like you said, it's really hard to get people to, to invite their friends to church for whatever their reason is. You know, I don't know if they're embarrassed of the whatever the service or they didn't think they don't think it's seeker friendly or something like that. Mm. What would you what would you say was the biggest difference in that thriving church that you've seen compared to the ones that don't have that strategy, if you see what I mean? Yeah, so they were all doing different things, they weren't yeah, all doing so the same no... strategy. And that would be really unhelpful to yeah, come yeah, to a yeah. conference and say there's only one way to do it. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. And everyone's like, really? You know, in our town? Are you sure? Because I don't think that's the case. I don't think it particularly matters what your strategy is. If you can contextualize something so that it works and your guys get confident in it, it doesn't really matter what your strategy is, if, if, if it's biblical and if it results in everything that we want to see. Um, I think the key thing is, is the, the, the church getting confidence in the model. So if you were to stand up and say on a Sunday, hey, we're going to run a Sunday that you can invite anyone to, well, that's fine to say that, but if you don't actually do that, you're going to lose credibility with the congregation. Think, I don't know what world you're living in. Plus, to be honest, I haven't seen you bringing friends. So this amazing thing that you think's happening, I can't see you bringing people to it. Mm. Same with Alpha. Hey, Tuesday's coming, bring your friends to Alpha. When did you last bring some time? So it's got to have authenticity. So I think you've got to come up with something that works in your context that you can have confidence in, which could be a friendship evangelism, bringing people to uh, small uh, social events, then an alpha launch, then an alpha course, and so on. With all the work you've got to do, coaching people to get the friends in the first place and modeling it to them. Or it could just simply be you put on such an attractional Sunday that when you say, hey, invite your friends, it sounds realistic because you actually baptized, I don't know, 12 people at the start of the service, and they all had the same testimony, which was, there was this girl at work, she was really friendly, she always seemed to be positive, like when I was having a hard time, she was really nice, and then one day she invited me along here, and I thought, oh, I won't go, because I'm not religious, and she asked me again, and do you know what, one Sunday I came, and I'm so glad I did, oh, my last change, blah, blah, blah. and then if you get enough of those, people think, well, yeah, I, I don't know, it's out. to me it just sounds loud, but for you, obviously, it works for you, so that could be, you know, we might say, well, you know, why spend so much money on the lights, you know? But, but from their point of view, this is amazing. So it doesn't really matter what it is. That's a really good question. Okay, I've got three now. Uh, I'll try and go as fast as I can. Yes, over here. Yes. My, my fear of the attractional service is that it becomes very it's a name or it's an activity that is, that is attractive. So I'd say lots of the people of the friends of where you live might not feel that they are in bad situations. Yep. So you've got the fringe people, which we are, can't really, which we do have a business for, 
for all those other people, it's they might rather go to the wine society or the whatever, you know, the, the yep. cinema society, whatever. Yep. And we don't want to try and be all of those things in order to get someone in, because we've seen churches where it, it just perpetuated it more and more and more and more, and then it just exploded because everyone was there, and one week it wasn't good enough for me, so I'm not going to go anymore anyway. So it's sort of based on a, a, a rocky foundation because of the attraction started. It's my, it my fear of that, of that, I suppose. Yeah. Sorry, I, I thought you were going to ask a question. No, no, I was just going to say, yeah. my, my fear, like, do, you, do, you, do you share that sort of... Oh, absolutely. Sound, you know? Yes, in that context, and that wouldn't be the right model. I mean, that would be a really good reason to not go down that road. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I had two more. Mick from Weymouth. Is yeah. there a danger that we read Matthew 28 and says, you know, go and make disciples of all yes. nations, yes. but we read it as, go and bring people to church, and the pastor will make disciples of them? Yeah, yeah. yeah there is. And actually, if you did see lots of people respond, you can't disciple them all from the pulpit. So I've been involved with churches which have seen loads of people becoming Christians. The only way it can happen is if you have a culture that you jolly well brought them. You better stop living with your girlfriend if you want them to live a holy life. I mean, you brought your mates. He's really stuck his hand up. He says he want to get baptised. You know, ball's in your court. And that really, I tell you, that really puts the fear of God into people. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because I went, I just invited her and she said yes. So I better buck my idea. Yeah, you better buck your ideas up. Because you know, you're, you're now the only Bible that they're reading. Mm. You know? So that, that really, now I believe that that's biblical discipleship. That's the one another. You know, that, that's me taking responsibility for my world and being Jesus to them. So no, I, I mean, there might be some gifted pastors who are able to preach attractional messages and also disciple people from the pulpit. Probably. We'll have relatively few of them, but you're still going to need the accountability on the ground level. You can't do it all. It can't be all air war. You're going to have to have some ground war. Okay, last question from lady over here on my right. Who are you? Where are you from? I'm Elaine, and I'm from Weymouth as well. Oh wow! Okay, great. Um, I just—it's just within me, really. There's a big difference between head knowledge. Yeah, these people are going to hell. These people need God. Yeah. And me. I, I love the gospel. I love preaching freedom, people being set free, people knowing the love of God, people knowing grace. But there's a big divide between that and feeling that people need God out in the street. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't feel it, is what I'm trying to say. I don't yes. feel the pain of these people not knowing God. Yes, but you do know the joy of your own salvation and you can share your own story. And that's in these churches that are seeing lots of saved value growth, that's what's happening. You've got people who are leaving their desk at work, and the person next to them says, where are you going? Oh, I'm going out for something to eat, I'm going to this course on a Wednesday night. What do you mean, what course? Oh, it's called Alpha. Really? What's that then? Well, and then they start to say why they like this Alpha thing, and what it's done for them, and then after a while their mate comes with them. There's no, you know, that's how it happens. Yeah. You, you've, you've got that little joy, that spark. You can see a glint in your eye. That something's changed. Like he's changed. He doesn't have his head down in a way he used to. What's happened to him? And that's how it happens. Can I just share a picture quickly? Yes, please do. Um, Last 60 seconds. Went on holiday um, to and uh, went to a vineyard. And um, I really felt God speak to me um, in it. Um, 
had to go to a vineyard, as you do. And when I got there, it was a beautiful building, but there weren't many vine um, plants around. And um, when they took us on a tour, I said to them, um, where are all the, vine uh, the vines? And she said, oh no, we don't grow all of the grapes here. What we do is that over the whole island, uh, there's loads of different people with their own vineyards. And then when it's harvest time, they bring all the grapes in and then we make the wine from that. And I feel like it's a really good picture of um, how as leaders we can encourage people to use their gifting um, with the people that are in their spheres. Um, and then they bring not people in so that the pastors can transform them but uh, to preach to them, but you bring your fruit of your labours into the house of God once the fruits come. So really to encourage people to use their gifting and to um, befriend people and do their own bit of work and then bring it into the church. Right. So I think it's really encouraging. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that at the end. Thank you all for coming. I did say at the start that I'm not expecting you to agree with me. If there is one thing that you can take away from the seminar, take that, forget the rest, go with that one thing. Thank God for it. Thank bless you. you. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Farewell. Thank you.